0: I've got nieces and nephews in town, and uh, in a very, very cool way, I was allowed to uh, watch them participate in the Wheat Ridge High School musical this past, uh, well, months ago this year. And how many of you have been to a high school production like that of any kind the last couple of years? Raise your hands. Okay, great, great. So you know... uh, It's not always the most slick production ever, you know. I mean, they're high school, right? But it was really good. I mean, the kids are really great in it. I mean, uh, it's just that there's there's mistakes. You expect mistakes. It's kind of like coming to Scum of the Earth on a Sunday and expecting the service to run smoothly. It just doesn't do it that often, right? So um, go to this play, and there was one time... Uh, something went wrong. Now you remember in high school productions how when the curtain closes things all of a sudden change behind the curtain and then it opens back up and then whoo, it's all different, right? You get a new scene. You were in the home now You're down by the docks in the water and you go oh they did that and the curtain closes and opens up again. Oh, and now you're on a city street someplace and that's the way they go well, you know uh, one time they just forgot to close the curtain in time and so all of a sudden, you see all these darkly clad high school figures running out onto the stage, and they're moving things around, and you know, you hear the creaking of wheels and things like that. you're going, oh, okay, so that's how they do it, right? Well, uh, we're going to have that happen today a bit. We're going to look at the Scriptures, and it's going to be sort of like the Lord has allowed us to see behind the curtain What's going on behind the actors? Six Shakespeare said that the world is a stage and that we're just the players on it, so we're going to look at maybe the crew today and see what that might tell us. Kind of interesting. It's worlds colliding, the supernatural, spiritual, angelic realm behind the scenes, and then the physical human world that we know of every day. So if you've got a Bible, you can open it up, go to Daniel chapter 10. I'll read and I'll stop as we go along, beginning in verse 1. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belteshazzar, its message was true. And it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. So this is preamble. As a matter of fact, everything we're talking about today is introduction. We're not going to actually get to the vision today. That won't be for a couple of weeks. Next week, Dave Weatherby will come, and he'll be talking about the part that I skipped over last time, so what's happening now is setting the stage for the vision he's going to see. It's the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, if you remember from the series, the way it's been going, I talked about at one point Daniel mentioned in the first year of Darius the Mede. Well, Darius's reign is over. It was only a few years, we think. And the Persians now have taken over with Cyrus the Great, who was probably one of the greatest kings of the Persian, Medo-Persian Empire. You can read about him in history books. We're expecting that at this particular point, Daniel is approaching 90 years old. We think he's probably born in maybe uh, 620 B.C., He was taken maybe around 605 to Babylon as a captive when he was 15 or maybe even a little bit younger. So he's an old man now. He is approaching his death. In fact, we think he probably dies within a few years after this vision that he's about to receive. And it's amazing the things that are given to this man. I just want to make a point here that years of faithfulness to God prepare you for things God wants to give you. Things that you cannot handle when you're in your 20s. You can't handle them because of your pride, or your arrogance, or your youth, or your short-sightedness, or your impatience. But if you stay in a relationship with the Lord Jesus, and you allow Him to work His character into you, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, all those fruits of the Spirit... If you have a relationship with them that is disciplined and consistent, you will prepare yourself for bigger things down the road in your life. This is not all there is. This is an encouragement that that on the inside, you're going to get better and better. You're going to get more and more faithful. You're going to become the kind of person God can rely on and entrust things to if you continue in your faithfulness today. And at this point, Daniel was receiving the kinds of information that only a very few men in the history of the world have ever been able to receive. He really is one of the greatest prophets of all time, and it's because of his faithfulness. Now, he, uh, it says here, verse two: At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food nor meat. Or wine touched my lips, I used no lotions at all, until the three weeks were over. So Daniel is undergoing some kind of a fast. He is praying and he is fasting. Why? We're not sure. But it could be because of the kinds of things he is seeing happening. We know that Cyrus began to let the Jews go back to the promised land. If you read elsewhere in the Old Testament prophets, it appears that Cyrus has actually heard from God, the God of Israel, the one true God, directly, and he believes that he needs to let them go back. And so he does, and so the waves of Jews are going back to resettle the promised land, the beautiful land, as he called it last time. Now, The temple has not been rebuilt yet. That comes with Ezra later on. And and the walls of Jerusalem and the gates haven't been rebuilt yet. That comes with Nehemiah, even a hundred years almost, down the road. But things are going along, and maybe Daniel is praying for the increase of his people to go back because he knows all the work that has to be done to build Israel back up into what God wants it to be. We don't know why he's fasting, but that could have been one of the reasons he's fasting. And when you fast and when you pray, things begin to happen spiritually. If prayer is kind of like a flashlight, searching for the will of God, then when you fast along with your prayer, it's kind of like a giant searchlight. You're intensifying it many, many times over. And God begins to respond because you are clearing things out, not just physically, But spiritually, it's right around Passover. The people are leaving, going back to the promised land. This time is ripe with meaning for Daniel. And so he decides to pray and fast. And he's not doing a complete fast, if you notice. He's refraining from certain kinds of food, from meats, from alcohol from choice food or pastries or whatever. Now, if you remember back in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends gained some notoriety with the Babylonians because they, they didn't eat any of the king's food. They just wanted pretty much vegetables and water. It appears that Daniel has not kept up that kind of a diet his whole life. So now he is refraining. And so I just want to say In June, we're going to be going on a corporate fast as a body of believers. We're going to ask you to fast and to pray with us for scum of the earth. For yourselves, actually. For we are the church, right? We're not at the church. And you don't have to go on a total fast and just drink water. You might fast from certain foods, like Daniel is here. Daniel also is not putting on any lotions which would be things obviously to make you you know smell sweet in the dry arid climate it would make your skin feel better so you know some people I know some women I know on fasts have foregone wearing makeup wearing jewelry those kinds of things I know some guys who have fasted from media they don't listen to the radio in the car they don't play their music on their iPods. they rather Will just read the scriptures or listen to the scriptures. There's all kinds of fasts. Verse 4 On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up, and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of the finest gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. Daniel sees somebody in this vision. And we're not really sure who it is. I figured you probably didn't know, at least I didn't know what topaz looks like or what the gleam of burnished bronze. So if you could go ahead a couple. This is topaz. So there is something about his body that a jewel-like appearance. Other translations uh, use chrysolite, which is pretty much the same looking kind of a gem except with a greenish tinge. And then burnished bronze looks like this. You can see how the gleam of burnished bronze in the sunlight would be almost blinding. So whoever this is, he is dressed in some kind of a priestly garment. There's a white linen ephod that has got some kind of gold band around it. And I think this is the same... Someone like the Son of Man that he has seen before. In my interpretation, this is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He is seeing Jesus, the Eternal One, before he was born of the Virgin. In a vision. Why do I say that? I say that because Daniel is at a loss about how to describe this guy. So he's going into his vocabulary and exhausting his gemstones and his natural lighting kind of phenomena to describe this guy. Plus, other people in the Scriptures, when they've seen someone who looks like this, very often it was the deity. It was Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, we read where the apostle John says this. He says, when he's exiled on the island of Patmos and he's begun the revelation of the end times, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man. Dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. So, some people think this is another angel. Some people think this is the pre-incarnate Christ. Either way, it's fine. That's my take on it. Let's go back to the scripture verse. Verse 7, I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. The men with me did not see it, but such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and they hid themselves. So I was left alone gazing at this great vision. I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Now this is interesting. Go back. This is interesting, I think. He's with other dudes. He has this vision of surpassing beauty and brilliance. And these guys are just afraid. They don't know what's going on. They go and they hide. But Daniel sees them, he sees the Lord. Isn't this kind of amazing? I think it's amazing that God is so concerned about us individually that He will appear to us in ways that only we can make out, that we can see. It means that you could be sitting in church next to someone, maybe even your spouse, and that person could be having an encounter with the risen Lord. And you're just singing songs with words on a wall. Isn't that amazing? It also means that just because you're part of a body of believers, you go to a church, it doesn't mean that you're encountering Jesus. But it does mean that He cares about you individually enough that He will reveal Himself to you. So stay with it. Seek the Lord while He may be found. And He will come to you in a way that is tailor-made for you and your senses and your experience. He wants to be known. But he does different things with different people. I'm not Daniel. I've never seen anything close to this. I imagine one day, when I die, And when I am with the Lord in heaven, I'll get a glimpse. That's exciting. Verse 9. Then I heard him speaking, and as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. So he's been standing up to this point. And now he falls to the ground in a deep sleep, a coma. He's out. He cannot stand in the presence of the Lord. Can't do it. This is not unusual in the scriptures. We see this quite a bit. People not being able to stand in the presence of God. But I want you to notice his postures in this passage. Because he goes through several different postures. It's just interesting. Also, I think that at this point, we're going to switch from Jesus interacting with Daniel to one of his angels. I say that because if you read ahead in chapter 12, you'll see that... uh, The Lord, the Son of Man, is speaking from in between the banks of the Tigris, and there is an angelic figure on one bank and another angelic figure on the other. So it appears there's more than uh, one, more than two heavenly beings in this vision of his, plus the next person seems to take orders, and Jesus... (laughs) gives the orders, okay? So I, don't, I, I think so. So Daniel's out, and now someone's going to touch him, and I think it's going to be one of the angelic beings who are there. Verse 10. A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. So this angelic hand is imparting strength somehow. It's helping him out when he's wiped out. Hebrews 4, uh, verse 1, verse 14, chapter 1, verse 14 says, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Maybe you didn't realize this, but angels are there to serve us, to help us, to guard us, to protect us at the will of the one who made them. It seems to me that the way you show love to a person is to serve that person. Didn't Jesus say I didn't come to be served, but to serve. That's what the angels do. The fact that they are created in a higher order than us, according to other scriptures and psalms, it's almost ironic that they rather would serve us by serving the Lord's intentions in our lives. I don't think that's changed. It's still going on today. Verse 11. He said, Daniel, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up. For I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Yeah, I'd be trembling too. (laughs) But... This angel is the one who is sent. Now, could it be Gabriel? Yes, it could be Gabriel. We've seen him appear a couple times before in this book, but Daniel doesn't say that it's Gabriel, so I'm not going to say that it's Gabriel. And now Daniel's standing again, by the way. Then he continued, Do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to them. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Okay, stop the bus. Hold on. Tell me what earthly king, Cyrus, is going to do anything to this angel in front of which Daniel cannot even barely stand up. It isn't an earthly prince. All the context leads us to believe That this is an angelic prince, albeit an evil and fallen angelic prince. Something we would call in the vernacular demons. Now, let me explain something. God created everything. Everything that is seen, everything that is unseen. He created angels, and we're told that there was a rebellion, that Lucifer, his bright angel, the bearer of light, rebelled against God and took perhaps as many as a third of the angelic armies with him in his rebellion against God. These angels, these once good, bright angels, by their own free will and their own choice, then become what we know as demons. And the prince of Persia, it appears, is one of their big ones. As a matter of fact, if we keep reading on, it appears that Satan has arranged his angelic armies in some kind of a hierarchy. And at the top of several world empires, there was a very high-ranking demonic, angelic prince. Hence... The Prince of Persia. It's not Jake Gyllenhaal in some B-Hollywood adventure movie. It is a real, although invisible, spiritual being. So the context demands that this antagonist be considered supernatural rather than a raw human individual. And this demon exercises influence over the Persian realm in the interests of Satan himself. Now, his appearance is finally overcome because of Michael, one of the chief princes. But the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. So how many days had this angelic messenger been detained with this demonic figure? 21 days. How long was Daniel fasting? Three weeks. Same thing. I don't know how these... Worlds colliding affect one another, but somehow they're related. Could Daniel's fasting and praying, his continued perseverance in fasting and praying, somehow helped with the delivering of the message? Yeah, probably, maybe, I don't know. And could this unseen world affect the way things happen on the earth? Definitely, according to this passage, Daniel's waiting for an answer to his prayers. Now, the powers of evil are apparently able to hinder the delivery of answers to requests that God has a mind to answer. Does this make you scratch your head? Because God is all-powerful, right? Omnipotent, we call it. He could deal with this prince of Persia with a flick of his finger. Could he not? But he doesn't. What is up with that? Why doesn't God do anything? Well, my feeling is if God wanted to do everything Himself, He wouldn't have created angels and humans and animals and the universe, right? So that's obviously not what He wants. And He's given each of us a sphere of authority in which to operate the gifts and the talents and the strengths He's given us. Now, let me explain this by illustrating with a story about parents and children. Let's say that you're a parent of a small child. Maybe some of you have done that years ago, and some of you are yet to do that. Some of you are in between. Or let's suppose that your child is having a very, very difficult time with another kid in the neighborhood maybe a bully, maybe there's just a friendship that's falling apart, maybe just terrible words are being said, maybe there's a difficulty on the playground. But because you know the future, in this case, let's say, you know it's going to work out just fine. You know your kid is going to triumph in that situation. You are not worried about the outcome of this particular difficulty. Might there be a reason that you don't step in then and just take care of it? You see, I've been a dad. I am a dad. And I can tell you, there are plenty of reasons I might not help my kid out of a jam. If I know things are going to be okay. Because I know certain virtues only occur in the presence of great difficulty. Perseverance is one of those character traits I want in my children. And it's not going to happen unless they're in a situation where they have to keep on keeping on. Patience might be another virtue. I want my kids to have burst in them. And I know that if I step in and I stop things from happening, or I start things happening so they don't have to exercise patience, I'm actually hurting my kid in the long run, and he or she is not going to develop the patience they need for later on in life. You know, there's a whole host of virtues that only come in the face of adversity. Forgiveness is one of those. Compassion is one of those. You can't forgive someone unless something's gone wrong. You can't have compassion on somebody unless something has happened that's not good. Then let's go on to courage. Courage does not happen without conflict, bravery, heroism, those kind of virtues. C.S. Lewis actually said that at his testing point, every virtue looks like courage. At his testing point, every virtue looks like courage. So I can see why God may not just flick his finger. Imagine you're this angelic messenger. You've been sent to deliver the answer to one of God's very esteemed humans. And you're on your way, you're flying or whatever you do as an angel. And you come against this prince of Persia, this large, imposing, powerful, demonic force. You can't get by. And you're calling out to God for help. As you're fighting with your lightsaber, your sword of fire. You know? I tend to think swords of fire and lightsabers are very, very closely related. Anyway. So, you're fighting and you're saying over your shoulder, God, you know, a little help here. Hey, God, I'm in a jam. Hey, God. He's going to whip me if you don't come and do something. And God's answer is something like really? Honestly? Isn't there anything you can do about it? Let's think for a minute. Have I given you anything that might help in this situation? Do you have any kind of community around you that might come around you in your time of need? And the angel goes, "Hmm." Archangel Michael's badass, or really, really good ass. Sure, I could call on Michael." And so he calls on Michael to come and help him. And so Michael and he get in the fight with the Prince of Persia, and somehow Michael ties up the Prince of Persia long enough for this angel to get by and deliver the message to Daniel. That's what it appears happened. Michael's got him pinned. On the mat. Not letting him up. Long enough for this guy to go to Daniel and give him the answer. Now, if that isn't strange, you probably never even knew that was in the Bible, did you? So weird. So weird. The angel is going to begin to explain the destiny of the Hebrew people up to the last days. Now, we find out that Michael is one of the chief princes. And we'll find out later on that there's a reason he was called in this particular place. Let's go on to verse 14. Now I have come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future. For the vision concerns a time yet to come. While he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Yet again, another posture. Now he's bowing. Let me just say this. And this is kind of an aside. I think these postures are... Interesting to me because of my prayer life. I mean, frankly, when I pray, posture makes a big difference about what I'm praying. If I am just wiped out, totally in need of God to come and help me even to get up on my hands and knees, I am praying face flat, prostrate on the floor. As a matter of fact, when I'm in that position, those kind of prayers naturally come out of me. They're very, very different than prayers that I pray when I'm standing up with my hands raised. Those are very often more prayers of praise and adoration. And those are different yet than prayers that I pray while I'm on my knees as I'm acknowledging the Lordship of God and my subservience to him. I'm just saying that Daniel's going through an emotional roller coaster at this particular point, and his body language is showing it. All right, that was for free. Verse 16 Then one who looked like a man touched my lips. And I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid, you who are highly esteemed, he said. Peace. Be strong now. Be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. Sometimes we have to ask for strength just to hear the words the Lord wants to say to us. Because frankly, we're unable to hear them. I encourage you to do this in your own prayer life. Ask God to give you the strength of character, the strength of spirit, even the strength of body, to hear what it is He has to say to you. Now the vision that Daniel has seen has just totally destroyed him. Sometimes when we see God's plans for our life, it isn't the most pleasant news in the world. At least not to the natural man or woman or the flesh. We can ask God for strength even to hear and to respond and speak back to him. Verse 20, so he said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go, the prince of Greece will come. The prince of Greece... Man, this is like Tag Team Rumble, Smackdown, WWF, somewhere up in the heavenlies. You got this this angel and you got Michael, and all of a sudden now they're going to go back and they're going to finish out the Prince of Persia, and then the Prince of Greece is going to come. This parallels what's going on the earth as the forces of the Greek Empire come and overrun Persia and the whole known world under Alexander the Great. Again, worlds are colliding here, and he's saying, "Look, I got to deliver this message because I got to get back, man. There's a fight going on up there, and you know, Michael's got the Prince of Persia down on the map. He's gonna need me back to help him out. We got to fight to finish." Did you ever feel like sometimes you got the devil down, like you've you've won the battle for at least for a while? He's not done with you yet. He will send reinforcements. He will send others. He will get up off the mat and come at you again. It says that after Jesus was tempted in the desert, in the wilderness, before He began His earthly ministry, the devil left Him to come back at a more opportune time. We have an enemy. He is like a lion prowling. The earth, seeking whom he may devour, you are in a battle from now until the day you die, and thereafter as well. It's not over. Ephesians 6.12 says this in the New Testament, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We are given... Armor in order to fight. We are given weapons of defense as well as weapons of offense in Ephesians chapter 6. If you boil them all down, they come down to Jesus. Just trust me on this one, but the helmet of salvation, who's your salvation? Jesus. The shield of faith, who's your faith in? Jesus. The sword of the Word of God, who's the Word of God? Jesus. The belt of truth. Buckle around your waist. Who is the way, the truth, and the life? Jesus. Just trust me. Jesus. Alright? Jesus is the one who saves us and wins the battle against spiritual forces that are out to destroy you and run the world. Verse 21. He's saying... When I go, the Prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the Book of Truth. This is not the Bible. It's the Book of Truth. I've never seen it. But obviously, it has what's going to happen in the future written in it, which comes in the vision next time I'm with you. It's kind of like the Encyclopedia Britannica, a world book encyclopedia, all rolled up in one of everything that's ever happened on the earth. Amen. I don't know what it is. He says, But first I'll tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me against them except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. So he's going back to a fight that's been going on, we find out that Michael, the Archangel, is the prince over Daniel and his people, which are the people of God, which is Israel. That's what we find out. The angel reveals that he is still in combat. He's got to return to the battlefield to fight against renewed attacks from the demons assigned to Persia and Greece. These battles between the warriors of Satan and the Lord will continue until the defeat of Satan. And Satan will be defeated. He is a created being just like the Archangel Michael. And it won't be the first time that Michael and Satan tussle. Okay, we've just gone now from weird to absolutely crazy. Listen to this. We go to the New Testament. The book of Jude, one chapter. This is what it says. But even the Archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn the devil for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Oh, this is so strange. The devil and the Archangel Michael are competing for the body of Moses. Did you know that was in your Bible? Okay. Michael has jurisdiction because he is the archangel in charge of protecting God's people who are Israel. Now let me give you a little background. God buried Moses. Nobody buried Moses. God buried Moses. Nobody knows where the grave is. Why? My opinion, I don't think God wanted anybody to know where the grave of Moses was. Why would God not want anybody to know where the grave of Moses was? Because I think this is what's going on. If you've got a group of people who will take their jewelry, melt it down into a golden calf, and begin to worship that, how much more are they going to worship the bones of Moses? And I think Satan knows if he can get the body of Moses up out of the ground from someplace, he can cause a whole nation to become idolatrous, not follow the one true living God, but begin to follow the one in whom they saw tremendous signs and wonders. And that's why I think, my opinion, not just mine, but other theologians as well, that the archangel Michael and the devil are fighting over the body of Moses because God does not want that thing found out. Let's go to uh, Revelation chapter 12. This is the future. Let's go to that last slide. This is a great, great statue, picture of a great statue that I found. It's the Archangel Michael standing in triumph over the fallen angel Satan. I think it's amazing. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, that's the devil. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The Bible says that at this point, the devil and his angels are kicked out of heaven and thrown down to the earth, And woe to the inhabitants of the earth because he is filled with wrath because he knows his time is short. But the devil's defeat is certain. The devil's defeat is certain. It doesn't matter what he has tried to do to thwart the plans of God. Why was Michael fighting against the prince of Persia? I don't know, but I'm going to offer a guess. Did you know there was a plot that came out in the kingdom of Persia to destroy all the Jews? To annihilate every last Jew? If you know the story of Queen Esther and how she saved her people, you know about that plot. Could there have been some kind of reflexive battle going on in the heavenlies between the archangel Michael and his angels and the prince of Persia and his angels that predicted or helped or somehow influenced the outcome of what was going on in Persia during the time of Queen Esther? I think maybe yes. And then he talks about Michael and him having to go fight the prince of Greece, the angelic, demonic power over the empire of Greece. What happens under the empire of Greece with the Jews? But we learned just a little bit ago that Antiochus Epiphanes tried to wipe out the Jews, stop their religion, set up an idol in the temple, Antiochus hated the Jews. Wanted them dead. Killed tens of thousands of them. Could the battle against the Prince of Greece have something to do with that period in their history? When the Maccabees finally triumphed and cleared out the forces of that evil Antichrist. I think maybe so. And there will come a time in the future when the devil himself seeks to destroy the people of God. And that's when Michael and his angels fight the battle that finally casts all of the evil angels and their ruler, Satan, out of heaven. Just before Jesus comes to finish it off. All right, I know we've got a long time. Difficult passage, but I want to bring up just a few things. Number one, what do I get out of this passage? I get perseverance in prayer and fasting. I think there should be a slide for this, right? There's not. Okay. Number one. Perseverance in prayer and fasting. Fasting kind of takes me back to when I was a kid in the Greek Orthodox Church and I gave up, you know, Tootsie Rolls for 40 days before Easter, right? I thought that somehow by giving up candy, Tootsie Rolls, ice cream, things like that, that God would look at me and consider me to be a good little boy and I would make him happy. And then he would do things for me. Well, that's childish, isn't it? So then uh, I get to be older. I get to be a bona fide Christian believer in Jesus. And so I decide I'm going to fast again. And so this time, I start out my fast with much more noble ideas of toppling idols in my life, gaining understanding and wisdom about the things of God. Just like Daniel, right? But then somewhere in the middle of my fast, it becomes less about my godly goals and more about, hmm, I'm losing some weight. I'm looking better. This is good. I'm getting healthier. I feel better. This is awesome. Sometimes it becomes more about that the weight that I can use, and the relationship with God that I can gain. God is lost in the details of the very thing meant to find him. It becomes more about what I can do by means of this religious exercise than what God can do in me. And so it ends up becoming some kind of a spiritual self-help process by which I prove I don't even need the grace of God. And once again, I am that young Greek Orthodox boy proving to God that I'm a good Christian. If there is one thing that Jesus proved during his temptation when he fasted for 40 days in the wilderness, is that was he depended upon his Father for everything. Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Jesus rebuked the devil. If you go on a fast, like we're going to go on in June, you'll be tempted to do it on your own power. And even now, you're being tempted to live a life with God on your own power. So stay close to Jesus. Stay close to Jesus. Keep the main thing the main thing. Number two, there is a real world we can't see just beyond our senses. Now, they don't teach you this in school. They teach you the empirical method. They teach you that what you can tell by your five senses is all there is. Let me just say having taken a bit of science in college, there's a whole lot more of the spectrum of light that we can't see than we can. And that's just the known spectrum of light. There's a world out there that we can see that's just as real, and just because we can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It is real. It seems one of the jobs of the unseen angels is to keep touching, reassuring, uh, listening to us, giving us strength as we go about this world and do God's will. I'm kind of excited about that. Angels are there to help us by doing God's will. Jesus has given us authority in the supernatural realms. Very, very quickly, I'm going to tell you the story about two people at Scum of the Earth that I've never told, I think, during a sermon before. One involves a guy who didn't want to come to church one night. His girlfriend wanted to come to church, but he didn't. He didn't want to come because he was feeling very uneasy about it. As a matter of fact, he was starting to see things. That made him uneasy about it. So they parked their car not too far from here. And on the hood of his car, he sees a bat-like figure. With wings outstretched. That scared him. So that he didn't want to get out of the car. Now he had seen things like this before. For some reason, he was given insight into the supernatural world that most people are not given. So he didn't want to get out of the car. His girlfriend's out of the car because she didn't see it. And again, you don't want to be weird in front of your new girlfriend. So he gets out of the car and they come and they stand right over here by the porch. Now I am in the foyer looking outside. I see the girlfriend come up the steps. She's standing there. She turns. She looks at him. Are you going to come? He's on the sidewalk. Looks like he doesn't want to come. And I'm thinking, maybe I can help in this situation. And so I step outside and say hello and basically guilt him into coming up the steps and coming in to hear Larry Pombianco who was preaching on the second chapter of Daniel and all sorts of spiritual weirdness that occurs there. The guy comes in Is totally struck by the message of God's word as Larry presented it from Daniel chapter two. Comes and asks Larry if you can talk to him. They get together and then he starts explaining the kinds of things that he's seeing, and Larry says, We need to pray for you. Because then Larry and me and he get together, and we have a prayer time upstairs in that room. And we did battle against unseen forces. But unfortunately, this young man was able to see. He was having physical reactions to the prayers, like these f- demons were coming after him. He, he, f- he could see them. He could feel them. But God was faithful. The name of Jesus is powerful. And they left at the command of Jesus. The perseverance of our prayers, they were gone. He hasn't had a problem since. Another young woman would wake up in the middle of the night and have a darkness oppressing her so that she couldn't even see the light coming out of her bedroom window, the street lights outside. It was as if she couldn't even move her arms and her legs. She felt this evil presence in her room and she was almost paralyzed. I know this feeling because I felt it too. And what worked for her It's the same thing that worked for me. The incomparable, powerful name of Jesus. She starts saying, I belong to Jesus. Get away. In Jesus' name, leave. Over and over again. And the presence finally leaves. All sorts of other weird stuff's going on in our life. And so we get together and pray for her as well. A number of us prayed for her. And I can tell you that since that prayer time, because of the authority that we are given in Jesus' name, and the power of God, and however he works, your angels or whatever, she hasn't had those kind of dreams since. Praise God. I'm saying this is true. You just can't see it. My last point is prayer affects the unseen world as well as affecting the world we see. Our weapons, our faith in Christ are powerful and effective not just for things on earth but for things in the heavenlies. One man describing his prayer said, when I pray, I push. When everything seems to go wrong, I just push. When the job gets me down, I push. When people don't react the way I think they should, I push. When my money looks funny and the bills are due, I just push. When I want to curse people out for whatever the reason, I push. When people just don't understand me, I push. Push stands for pray until something happens. Pray until something happens. Pray with me. Lord God, thank you for your word. Difficult passage, but so rich and so good. May it feed our souls, prepare us to live in your will. In Christ's name, amen.